today is Mother's Day. And according to tradition, it is time for our annual Mother's Day story. And after much deliberation, debate, and absolutely no prayer comes the following story. Submitted by the Mother's Day slash joke committee. And uh, they wish to remain anonymous and for good reason, as you will see. A young mother was waiting in the checkout line at the shopping center. Her arms were laden with a mop, a broom, and other cleaning supplies. By her actions and deep sighs, it was obvious she was in a hurry and not very happy about the slowness of the line. When the cashier called for a price check on a box of soap, the young woman remarked angrily, indignantly, Well, I'll be lucky to get out of here and get home before Christmas. To which the store clerk responded, Don't worry, ma'am. With a good tailwind and that new broom you have there, you should be home in no time. You know, we've been talking about speaking the truth in love. And uh, on a more serious note, uh, you may have heard about the new Survivor show. Six men will be dropped on an island with one van and four kids each for six weeks. Each kid plays two sports and either takes music or dance lessons. There will be no access to fast food. Each man must take care of his four kids, keep his assigned house clean, correct all homework, complete science projects, cook, do laundry. The men only have access to television when the kids are asleep and all chores are done. There is only one TV and no remote control. The men must shave their legs and wear makeup daily which they must apply themselves either while driving or while making the lunches. They must attend weekly PTA meetings, clean up after six ch sick children at 3 a.m., make an Indian hut model with six toothpicks, a tortilla, and one marker, and get a four-year-old to eat a serving of peas. The kids, vote on, the, the kids vote them off based on performance, and the winner gets to go back to his job. That's beautiful. And so it is for, for many moms, and so to all the moms, grandmas, nanas, great-grandmas, all of you are here, who do what you do. May God continue to bless you as you serve Him in your service to your families. And so, on a serious note, happy Mother's Day to everyone. As we uh, continue uh, through our study in the book of Acts, I want to ask you the following question, and that question is this. What is the primary goal of the church? What is the primary goal of the church? How would you respond if you were asked such a question? Some would argue that the church should lead the crusade for social justice for the poor and the oppressed. Others see it as a political force to help change the culture. Still others view their church as a private club where they can socialize with their friends. On a more biblical note, the church's goal is to mature the saints through the preaching of the word, fellowship, and discipleship. It also meets to praise and worship God. And those are all important goals, but the reality of that is each one of them is not the primary goal of the church's mission. In fact, every one of them could better be accomplished in heaven then the question remains, what is the primary goal of the church and therefore of each one of us as believers? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 
uh, 5, as we look at this particular passage, it will address that question for us. In Acts chapter 5, we pick up after the account of Ananias and Sapphira, which we saw last week, and which will tie into this particular message as well as we look at it in in context. But we read this starting with verse 12. It says, And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. To to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go your way and stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come together, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about, about them as to what could have come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people lest they should be stoned. It says, And when they brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God highly exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, and he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may find that you're even fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged him and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer, shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You know, the early church understood its primary, its primary purpose, its primary mission. They never lost sight of the fact 
that they were to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria, even to the outermost parts of the earth. They understood that they were to be effective witnesses. And when you think about that, the Bible tells us that they, they, they were added that day about 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. And not many days after that, Peter's second sermon, there was another 5,000. And as we've noted, even in Acts chapter 4, there were so many people being added to the numbers of those who believed that Jesus is the Messiah, that they were being added at such a great length, I mean, at such a great rate, that they couldn't even keep track of it anymore. And you'll find no more numbers listed anywhere in Scripture. And as we've gone through this, the Bible says that the multitudes of men and women were being added to the church. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria uh, enjoyed peace and was being built up in the fear of the Lord. And God continued to add to their numbers. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what did the church do to contribute to such remarkable growth? And how did the church expand so rapidly when you think of the opposition that it encountered? And as we look at that and consider that, basically this passage lays out for us five keys, what I'll call five keys to effective evangelism. Now for those who aren't familiar with the term evangelism, evangelism simply means to announce good news. And when we talk about good news from a biblical standpoint, the good news always follows the bad news. The bad news is that man has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that man has turned its back on God and rebelled against God. Because of the sin we're told of Adam, our forefather, sin entered into the world through him. And the Bible says, through sin then entered into the world death. And the reason that all of humanity dies is because all of humanity is guilty of being sinners before God. We're stained from birth with what some would call original sin. The sin of our forefather, Adam, has been, ca- has been carried throughout generations. The bad news is that all of us, as humanity, have fallen short of God's glory and are guilty before God. That's the bad news. We're all condemned and we're judged. And we're on, the, we're on the road to hell as we come into this world and go through this world unless something radical changes to stop that destination. And that destiny is, is for every person, and that's bad news. The good news that we herald, or the good news or evangelism to announce good news, is that we don't have to end up judged for sin. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The good news that we're to share with the world around us is that, yes, the bad news that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God, that you're condemned by God, you'll be judged for sin. But the good news is He loved us so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place for those who would believe and demonstrated the power that Jesus has to forgive sin by raising Him from the dead. That He can offer us spiritual life because He has the ability to do so. Jesus said it best when He said, All authority has been given to me. Which means that if you put your faith and trust in me, I have the authority to give you eternal life. I have authority to forgive your sin. And that was a constant source of irritation with the religious leaders that Jesus would claim to be able to forgive sin. Because they knew that only God could forgive sin. And Jesus, demonstrating his power to do both, said, Hey, what's easier to do, stand to tell this man who has never walked to stand up and walk, or to tell the man his sins are forgiven? And they said, well, it's easy to say things. It's harder to demonstrate it. He said, well, in order to show you that the Son of Man has the ability or the power to forgive sin, I'll tell this man to stand up and walk. Stand up and walk. And he did just that. 
And he did it so that it would be a sign for those who are looking for the Savior that he would be the one that they can turn to and trust. The Bible says that, that if we believe in him or believe on him or receive him, speaking of Jesus, the gift that God has given us, that we shall have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way to heaven. There's no other way to find forgiveness. And the key to effective evangelism, which is to be able to proclaim that message to the world around us, is what we're looking at here in great detail. Since the church is a collective body of individual believers, the church is never a building. It's never a physical structure. It, are, it, it is comprised of individuals who have believed in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, baptized into the body of believers, that the church is us as those who have received Christ's forgiveness for sin. And so when you look at this, we need to learn from this passage how you and me can become more effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us who are lost, who are condemned. And you know, and it's amazing how confused our culture is as to that truth or reality. Uh, I did chapel last week when the um, um, Detroit Tigers were in town, and as I was going through the locker room, one of the guys that I know pretty well said, Chuck, come here a minute, we're having a conversation, I'd like you get, get, to get your input. And one of the guys was there talking about, well, he goes, well, what about people that never heard about Jesus? How could God condemn them? Because they've never heard. And the reality of the question is, his misunderstanding that we are all born into the world guilty, we don't become guilty at a certain point in time. We sin because we're born sinners we don't turn into a sinner at some point in our life after we've made a bad choice or a wrong choice between God. We are all lost. And my question to him was a very simple one. Listen, if people are born innocent and confronted with the gospel, which makes no sense because why would Jesus have to die for sinners if we're not sinners? So he didn't have to die for anybody to save anybody from God's judgment of sin because if we're all born good or we're good, that's not necessary. But just taking your argument to its logical conclusion, if people are born good and somewhere along the line turn out where they make wrong decisions, the question you've got to ask yourself is this. And then if they're held accountable to the gospel saying that you're a sinner... You need to repent from your sin, turn to God, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and that person says, hey, you know what, that's good for you, but I'm not interested. If it's at that point where they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ that they're condemned by God, then why would we want to share that news with anybody? Why put them in a position to have to make a decision where they may reject Jesus and thus be condemned at that point? The point is very obvious. We are told, commanded to go into all the world and to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're to do that is because all man is guilty before God and condemned and judged already. The Bible says Jesus came into the world not to condemn or to judge it because the world is condemned already. John chapter 3, 16 through 18. The world has already been judged. When? When Adam sinned, God judged the world at that moment in time. We are all sinners, and it's only by God's grace that we can be saved from the inevitable fate of being condemned by God and judged by God for sin. There's not a person here that can claim in good conscience before God that you have always done what is right. No one can. There are many people who say, I'm not that bad, I'm pretty good, blah, 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 but we'll always finish it off, but hey, but nobody's perfect. That's the point. No one is perfect. We've all sinned. We all need forgiveness. We all need to repent. 
We all need to turn to Jesus Christ and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin and, and believe in His resurrection that He has the power to be able to do what He claims He's going to do. See, why would we share that with anybody if it puts them in a position of being condemned by God? The reason we share it is because they're already condemned. And they need to hear the good news that that doesn't have to be the inevitable fate of every one of us. So let's look at five keys to what we'll call uh, effective evangelism. How to be able to share with people around us in an effective way. From this passage, we learn of these five keys. The first one is we need to be committed to personal purity. We need to recognize that in order to be effective in reaching others with the gospel, that we're to be committed to personal purity. Back in chapter 5 again, look at um, uh, verse 12. It says, And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place. They were all in one accord. It goes on to say, In all the believers in verse 14, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. In verse 13, None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. To be useful to God, an individual must be personally pure. If you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy for a second, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see the same words of encouragement and command to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. And what he was trying to get across to him is the same that God is getting across to all believers, and that is the importance of living a life of purity. In 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, starting with verse 19, look at these, we'll read these words together. It says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Abstain from wickedness. In a chapel message that I gave, I was talking on John uh, 13, the, the passage where Jesus is washing the feet of His disciples. And in that particular passage, it's clearly ta- taught to us and shown us that salvation is all of God. That God, when a person repents from their sin and they turn to God and they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, the Bible says that we are washed or regenerated, Titus 3.5, by the Holy Spirit of God. We're washed by God from head to toe. That's what God does for us. We don't add anything to it. Salvation is all of God. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And the reason for that is, is that God is the author of salvation. Only God can give eternal life. But in that particular passage, Jesus also taught them a very important truth, and that's this. He taught them to keep their feet clean. God washes us from the top of our head to the tip of our toes when we trust in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so He removes our transgressions. Though our sin is as scarlet, He makes them pure as snow. And the point is that God is the one who gives eternal life. But from a daily practical uh, standpoint, He also holds you and I accountable to make right decisions in our life and to live a life that's pleasing or pure before God. He says, all of you who name the name of the Lord as your Savior, then abstain from wickedness. What he's saying is stop living in sin. Stop entertaining sin. Stop compromising in your walk with the Lord. He goes on and says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. He's saying, Hey, in the household of God, it's a big house, no different than your home. There are kids and you know, children in your family who choose to do right. There are children in your family who choose to do wrong. And it's a heartbreaking reality here on Mother's Day for any mother or grandmother who knows that and understands that, that you have children in your household who are choosing to do 
what's wrong, and it's heartbreaking, and yet you have children who do what is right, and it's a blessing, and, 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 and it's pleasing to the Lord that that is a reality. We all know that. We understand that. But what he's saying to us is this. In God's household, it's no different. There will be those of us who choose to do what is right, and we will be honoring to the Lord. There are those of us who choose to do what is wrong, and we will dishonor Him by naming Him as our Savior. He goes on and says, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Notice what he's saying is, We must be useful to our Master. And we cannot be useful if we are compromising and living in sin. We are dirty. Our feet are dirty. We need to confess our sin. Agree with God what we're doing is wrong. We need to confess our sin and He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can't make this any simpler than this. The reason that most of us are not effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us are that because, is because we are dirty with sin. And there is nothing attractive about our life. No one will want what we have if what we have is tainted. That which kept me from the, considering the claims of Christ was the hypocrisy of those who called themselves Christians. I did not consider the claims of Christ because those who called themselves Christians blocked my view of Jesus. If you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. We're all doing the same stuff. The only difference is you go to church or say one thing, but you live another way, as we've already been talking about. You know, you're walking, you're not walking the walk. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're talking, but you're not walking. You're saying, but you're not doing. You know, your lips don't translate into your life, and therefore, whatever it is you're trying to say to me, I have no interest because it doesn't make any sense. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor and evangelist, said this, Don't forget the culture of the inner man. Since I mean of the heart, how diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp, and every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, and I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents of God. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. See, what is true of believers individually should also be true of the church collectively. You know, the church that would reach the world must be pure. It must be a church that deals with sin. God just displayed to us very clearly that He will not tolerate sin in His camp. We just saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. It was a very real picture of God's, God's hatred of sin. The Bible says God hates sin. It's an abomination to Him. We must never be content or complacent about sin. To allow such to dwell in our midst or in our life is to, love, is to lose our effectiveness in reaching others with the gospel. I want you to stop and think very practically with me, very logically for a second. For those of you who are familiar with enough with the Bible to be able to answer this question, I want you to think about it and I want you to answer it to yourself. When or where have you ever seen in the Bible where God has this type of attitude to sin? Hey, don't worry about it. Nobody's perfect. Don't sweat it. Where... In Scripture, will you find that type of approach towards sin from God? I'll tell you what. 
I see a holy and righteous God who judges sin all throughout the pages of Scripture. I see a God, when you go back to, to, to Cain, the judgment of Cain, the judgment of Adam, the judgment of Adam and Eve, the judgment of Cain and Pharaoh and Egypt and the unbelieving generation of Israel that wandered for 40 years because they didn't trust in God. We see over and over again God's judgment. We see it in Joshua 7, the story of Achan. Just read that. God did not allow sin to be in their midst. There was a transition of leadership from, from Moses to Joshua and there was sin in the camp. And God exposed that sin and He judged it accordingly. God judged the sin of David even though the Bible records him as a man after his own heart because he didn't enact uh, revenge on those who were after him. But the reality of it was that God still judged him for his sin. God judged Jonah for his disobedience and running from the command of God to go to Nineveh and preach the message of repentance to those people. And he wouldn't do it and God judged him accordingly for his disobedience. Sadly, when you think about it, church discipline is practically ignored today and it's fallen prey to the unbiblical notion that loving people and building up their self-esteem means tolerating their sin. Biblical love steps up and says, hey, I'm concerned about your well-being and I know this about a holy and righteous God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. Payday for sin one day. God will judge. God says because of His great love for us in Hebrews, He disciplines or chastises or judges His children. Any parent who loves their child or children will discipline them. And the reality of it is, is that as God's people, we know the difference between right or wrong. The Word of God tells us the difference. <clears throat> we don't sin in ignorance. We sin in just outright rebellion against God's truth. We know the truth but we choose to turn our back on God. Any mother or father who loves their child or children, because of that love, will discipline them when they do that which is wrong. The Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, telling us what is right, and rebuke, you know, telling us when we're doing that which is wrong, and correction, telling us how to get right again with God, and training, telling us how to live right. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Luke 17.3, Jesus commanded, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Paul instructed Titus to reprove believers severely that they may be, in, they, they may be sound in their faith. Jesus in Matthew 18 is probably the best example of us for, for the whole discipline or idea of discipline in the church. That we're to go to an individual one-on-one and say, hey, you know what, brother, based on the word of God or sister, what you're doing is wrong before God. And in love, I come to you and I, and, and I beg of you to repent of your sin. Because there's consequences for it. There's a payday one day for it, and it will be far greater than you ever thought you were going to have to pay. Sin will take you further than you intended to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. It will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. And if we love one another, we'll rebuke one another. We'll correct one another. We'll challenge one another. We'll encourage each other to do what's right before God because God is a holy and pure God who judges sin. We need to realize that. People don't want to hear about that. You know, if any church even tries to discipline one of its members today, that person just says, hey, you know what? I don't have to take this. 
I don't have to put up with this. Who are you to judge me? I'll just go down the street. We've got other places to go, and I'll go down the street, and I'll get involved with another church group of people that, you know what, they're more sensitive than you are. They're more loving than you are. They're more tolerant of sin than you are. And the bottom line is, and they're also not concerned about your well-being because if they'll allow you to continue to live in sin, then they don't care about you whatsoever. I don't go around trying to discipline the world, but I'll tell you what, my kids know that, hey, look, the reason that I care what you do versus what I care about what everybody else is doing is because I love you, and I know you, and I'm personal with you, and I don't go around trying to change all your friends and discipline them and tell them what they should do or what they shouldn't do, but I will warn them of the truth of God's judgment. Sin always comes with some type of a pay, payday attached to it, and they're just ignorant of it and don't know it. But the difference between God's people, we know! And yet we choose, we know, but we don't always do. And the reason we're not effective in our witness to our community is because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know, stop and think about this. Go back to Acts for a second. What a powerful truth this is. Think about this for a second. Notice this in verse 13. None of the rest dared to associate with them, however, they were held in high esteem. Is that incredible? None of the rest would dare to associate with them, however, they were held in high esteem. Think about this for a second. The only thing that kept people from, quote, joining the church or becoming part of the fellowship or becoming a part of that group of believers, was that they were afraid that God would judge their sin. How long do you think it took before what happened to Ananias and Sapphira were out on the, on the uh, media wires? I mean, how long do you think? Now, CNN wouldn't report that today. But, you know, then, I'll tell you what, the word was out on the street. God judges sin. And you know what? And the people that were attracted to repenting of sin wanted to be involved with a group of believers that had repented from sin. Those who were playing the church game didn't want anything to do with it because they knew that, hey man, God knew what these people did, nobody else knew, and God knew their heart and he knew their intentions and he judged them accordingly. And when I walk in playing the church game, God knows how dirty my heart really is. And so therefore, I don't think I want to play church with you people, but I've got to admit, I respect you for what you believe. Isn't that incredible? See, today though, we just let anybody be a part of the church body. Because who are we to judge? And none of us are perfect. So therefore, let's lower the bar so low that we can all just kind of stumble over it, but we don't have to try to, you know, do any kind of high jump over it. And the unwritten rule is this. Listen, if you don't confront me in my sin, when you choose to do what's wrong before God, I'll cut you a break too. All right, we got a deal? Now, the only thing about that stupidity is that we forget that we're not the ones judging one another. God judges all sin. So why did you lie to God and to the Holy Spirit? We're not lying to each other and playing that game. God knows our hearts and he knows what we're doing. See, the hypocrisy of believers keeps unbelievers from considering the claims of Christ. Think about it. These people loved Jesus and they hated the sin that sent him to the cross. They didn't lie cheat, 
steal, engage in sexually immoral behavior, use filthy language and tell dirty jokes. They weren't drunkards or bitter or unforgiving people. They didn't gossip or slander about others. And the reason that they didn't do those things is that they were fearful. And that kept those who loved their sin away and those who wanted forgiveness for sin near. And you think about the sharp contrast today to the masses of uncommitted, even unsafe people that feel comfortable in church today. Think about how many people come and they go, I feel, oh, so much better about myself for having been there. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, if the Word of God is being taught and it's, and it's at the full counsel of God, you know, hey, God's Word goes out and afflicts those who are comfortable at times and at the same time comforts those who are afflicted. But the reality of it is, there are going to be times in our life where I kind of go, oh, man, that's tough. That hurts. And it's true, and I'm guilty, and I need to confess my sin, and I need to commit to doing what's right before God. But when the Word of God is not preached or taught and it's full counsel, then people can leave and feel good about themselves and feel good about their sin and feel good about the fact that, you know what, hey, God loves everybody and who's God to judge and don't worry, all roads lead to heaven and, hey, you know what, I'm no better or no worse than anybody else. And then they're, they're fooled into believing that they have a right relationship with God. That is not the truth of Scripture. And it's no wonder that the church has absolutely minimal effect in our culture today. We have lowered the bar so that the person who comes to church for the first time in their life will walk away feeling good about the experience instead of being convicted about their sin. And it's only conviction of sin that leads to repentance of sin that leads to trust in Jesus Christ for their, as their Savior for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. See, when you think about purity, it also has a mind power. There's power that comes with it. Think about what we just read to such an extent in verse 15 and 16 that they even carried the sick under the streets, laid them on cots and pallets so when Peter came by, they thought that, hey man, if this guy's shadow just crosses these people, they'll be healed. It says, and also people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. The power of God lived out through the life of a person who is dedicated or committed to obey God is an incredible truth. You know, in the early church, the, the power of God was done through the, through the hands of the apostles. And we've already learned that the reason that that was true is to validate the, the ministry of the apostles so that the message that they shared would be equally valid. So basically, they continued to do what Jesus had done to validate the message of him being Savior and forgiveness found in him and only him. So God continued to do through them what he had been doing through Jesus. Healing the sick, uh, opening the eyes of the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, doing all that. And man, the word was out to now their influence was spreading beyond Jerusalem. People in outer city, outlying cities heard about what was happening and they were bringing their sick. And the Bible says, and they all were being healed. All of them. And it had nothing to do with their faith or coming or anything. It had to do with God was using that as a miraculous time, as a sign to point them to faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. They were all being healed. It was powerful testimony. The purity of a person Christ is a powerful testimony to the world around us. It wasn't until Linda and I met people who lived out their faith that we were attracted to them to ask them the question, hey, what is it that you believe and what's different about what you believe than what I believe? Because what I believe, I can go to church for an hour on a Sunday and then I can go and live any way that I want to live the rest of the week and then I can go back to church again and as long as I keep going to church, it doesn't matter how I live because that should wash away the other six days. 
And it wasn't until I saw people that lived their life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it was like, well, wait a minute, there's something different about your faith than my faith because your faith changed the way you live your life. What is that all about? That powerful testimony of a life that has been transformed, or as Jesus said, born again. The testimony of a person who is born again. Old things pass away. All things become new. What is it that makes you tick? What is it about you that's different in your relationship to God versus what I call my relationship to God? What is going on? See, the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You know, people are looking for miracles today. Hey, let me tell you something. God still does miracles. He just doesn't do them through people as he did then. God still can do miracles. But I want to ask you a question. Is not the greatest miracle that you and I have ever seen outside the resurrection of Jesus Christ a sinner who has been born again and transformed? A person who was just living in total darkness and, understand, and excluded from the things of God when they came to repent of their sin and they responded with faith to the finished work of Christ and they were born again and their life changed? What greater miracle do people need to see today than a sinner who has come to faith in Christ and is born again and living a totally different life, 180 degrees from the one that they were just living? That's the greatest miracle God continues to do on a daily basis. All you've got to do is look around and ask people, and all we need to do is we, we testify of where God has brought us from to where we are today. And when people hear about where God has brought me from to where I am today, it's a powerful testimony of the reality that God changes lives through the power of Jesus Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Him, we are never the same ever again. But we need to be committed to purity. And as we're committed to purity and we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't cheat, we don't covet, we praise people, we, we build them up, we encourage them, we thank God for them, we pray for them. And it has nothing to do with, well, what's in it for me? It's all about, hey, how can I put you before me and how can I meet your needs rather than my own? The marriage that does that, where a husband puts his wife and his children before himself, the wife that puts her husband and children before herself, the children that put the parents before themselves, the marriage that does it, the family that does it, is a testimony, is light and darkness in our culture today. Jesus said we should be salt, which would cause people to thirst for the things of God, that we should preserve society by living lives that are obedient to God, that we should be light like a lighthouse, warning people of the impending judgment of God. You're about to be shipwrecked against the rocks, and God is saying, hey, I want to warn you, and I want to give you the light, which is the path that shows you the direction that you need to go. You don't have to crash and burn. You don't have to crash and burn and be judged for eternity for sin. You can turn to Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven. That's the light that we're to shed. That's how effective we should be in our evangelism of the world around us. To be effective witnesses, we must be committed to personal purity. And the power of that life will stand, will stand for itself. But we also need to realize, hey, you know what? There's going to be persecution. There is going to be persecution. A pure, powerful church will inevitably uh, provoke a hostile reaction from a world that has turned from God. Notice that says all this stuff was going on, man, and people were pumped up and excited about what, was, what God was doing in their midst. I mean, can you imagine the buzz that was taking place, the excitement, the enthusiasm? It's like, wow, people were bringing people from all over the place. Every one of them were being healed. God's, God's miracles were being performed in the midst, signs and wonders that were causing people to wonder what was going on, and also signs that were pointing to the faith in God who can do all things. If he can heal somebody, he can heal a heart. He can give eternal life. And they were jacked up, man. But you know what? Not everybody was happy. Notice that strong contrast in verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. 
the words arose, first of all, the word but is a strong contrast to everything that was going on. People were praising God, not these people. They rose up in anger and hatred and in jealousy. The apostles were getting all the attention that they had been getting all of their lives, and they weren't going to sit for that. They weren't going to settle for that. The religious leaders wanted all the glory. They wanted all the recognition. They did not want Jesus to be recognized and given glory as the Savior of the world. And isn't that true today? Those who fight the truth are just as guilty as these people were because it's all about them and not about God and certainly not about His Christ, Jesus. They wanted all the credit. They wanted all the glory. They wanted all the acclaim. They wanted all the recognition. But you know what? God had a different plan. And notice that the, the hatred that they had. They were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on all of them this time, not just one or two. Every one of them were effective evangelists. And they laid hands on all of them, and they threw them in a public jail, which was the worst setting you could actually be put in. They threw them into prison. It says, but, and I love this, and I want you to think about this. But an angel of the Lord, during the night, opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, said, go your way, stand in the temple, speak to the people the whole message of this life. You go back out in the temple and you continue to proclaim, proclaim Jesus and him crucified. And what's awesome about this is this. The next day the council gets together and they're going to try them. So they send the guards to go open the gates and they, the guards are outside and they're guarding the gates and they're not like jails like we had. There were rocks and so you could be inside one of those rock, rock prisons and there was just a little door or latch and so you could be standing out there and the guards stood there all night and they didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything and the bottom line is they went to get them and they weren't there. Guards were there. Yes, sir. Stepped aside, unlocked the lock, opened the door. No one's in there. Now they're freaking out because they're in deep trouble. And what's awesome about it is this, and I don't want you ever to forget this. The persecution of God's people has always been and will always be the stage that God sets to demonstrate his power. That'll never change. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. All you've got to do is think about when God's people were persecuted, it set the stage for God to demonstrate His awesome power. That is great. Think about what God did. He got them out. They didn't even know they were out. And not only did they not even know where they were, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And then on top of all of it, someone comes in and says, Hey, the guys you're looking for, geniuses, they're standing out in public in the temple and they're preaching the word again. Can you imagine how embarrassed these guys were? It's like, man, what are we going to do? They were persistent. And we need to be persistent. We need to be persistent in our witness to the world around us. Isn't that great? In verse 29, Peter said, hey, you know what? Hey, it doesn't matter. You beat us all you want. In fact, if you kill us, I know this. Absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord. So I'm thinking, hey, either way, uh, you know, in some, some ways I'm thinking, you know, Beat me to death. Because sometimes it hurts more to survive the beating than it would just to go on to be with the Lord. But no matter what you choose to do, we must obey God rather than man. I want to ask you to think about something. We live in a culture today that's telling Christians, stop talking about Jesus as the only way to heaven. Stop talking about Jesus as the only way you can be forgiven. All roads lead to heaven. It's going to insult people. It's going to offend people. But you know what? Let me tell you something. Every person's belief system is exclusive in itself. 
that's, that's nonsense when people say, well, you know what, well, what I believe is open to anybody else's belief. No, it's not. Every belief system has exclusive things that we need to do or you need to do in order to comply with that belief system. So the fact that Christianity excludes everything else from the standpoint that Jesus said he's the only way to the Father but through him and the only means of forgiveness is no different than what anybody else believes. And you know what? And we allow them to just tell everybody what they believe, when they believe it, why they believe it. And as Christians, we step back and say, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. Hey, that is not an option. It is not an option. He said we must obey God rather than man. We need to be discreet about how we share. We need to understand that we live in a hostile environment to the things of Christ. But we also need to realize and understand that it is our responsibility to tell people about the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If we love people, we will risk telling them that they need to be forgiven in order to find an eternity in the presence of God. You know what also I want you to notice too, they didn't compromise the truth. They didn't water it down. I mean, they just flat out told it the way that it was. Notice that in verse 30 and 31. They brought him before the council. He says, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. They couldn't even say the name of Jesus in this name. And behold, you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And then he told him the truth again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. Notice that. Hey, this is the truth. And the truth will set you free. But there was also a response and the productivity that we look at and that we need to recognize is basically threefold and we'll, we'll end on this. Number one, the productivity that we see is this. When the word is preached, the word of God is taught. And you know what? You also need to recognize that there are going to be times when you tell people... I mean, think about this for a second. What they were telling, what he told them is true. Hey, you put Jesus to death. You caused this, in essence, by their sin... And they were offended by that. They were angry. If the word of God is being shared with those around us in its entirety with no compromise, we can still speak the truth in love. But let me tell you something. There are going to be people who are angry at what you share. They will be angry about it. There's been many people who have left here and said, you know what, that guy's a jerk. Well, why? Well, because he said that if I don't believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, that I'm going to hell. Who does he think he is saying that I'm going to hell? He doesn't even know me. Hey, you know what? God knows you. He knows your heart. And you can play games with me or anybody else, and I might think you're a great person, but you know what? All I've got to do is ask the people that live with you, and they can tell you the truth. And so the reality of it is you're going to have people who leave that are angry by that message. You know, we've got to ask ourselves the question sometimes, hey, what are we sharing with people that no one ever gets angry with what we say? I'll tell you this, it's not the truth of God's word. Because there are many times that people were angry at Jesus for what he just shared, and they picked up stones to, to, to stone him. Or there were mobs that wanted to lynch him and kill him for what he said. The anger was there. It was like, look at it says, man, they wanted to slay them. They were, they were cut to the quick. It means that they were cut in half. I love this. You know why? Because the word of God is living and active than any sharp, and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, separate bone from marrow. It's able to cut us in half. And that's exactly what happened. When the word was taught, man, they were cut in half. And they had a choice at that point. They could either be angry or, as Gamaliel was, apathetic, 
don't worry about it, no big deal. If this thing's, you know, not of God, then it's going to disappear, and their leader's dead, and they'll just all disband, so don't even sweat it. If it's of God, then hey, you know what? Then we got a problem and it's bigger than this. But you know what? He wasn't admitting that it was of God. He was just making a very logical point that hey, if God's in it, it may be, you know, it, it, we may be fighting God instead of man. But his logic was, was, was filled with fallacy, and that's this. Everything that grows isn't of God. There are cults today with millions, literally millions of people who follow the false teaching of those who lead them astray, and that is not God doing it. So not everything that grows is of God. The problem with Gamaliel was he was trying to figure out some way. He was indifferent to everything that was going on. It was like, who cares? You know, it's no big deal. Let's figure out a way to resolve this and end it all. And for a guy who was heralded as one of the greatest teachers of Scripture, he was not being a very good scriptural student or teacher at this point because he would have been searching Scripture to find out if what was going on was really of God. He didn't care. He didn't care. Hey, he blew it off. And the last thing is this. The apostles were a great testimony of what comes when men and women accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll close with these words. So they were beaten, by the way, again, and they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his sake. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The primary mission or goal of the church and of every individual believer is to share the good news of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what category do we fall in? When we hear the truth of the gospel of Christ, that we're sinners separated from God, that God loves us, that we have to repent from sin, which is turn from sin and turn to God, confess our sin, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, the Bible says that we will fall into one of three categories. One will be angry at the message and want nothing to do with it. Two will be apathetic or indifferent. Hey, good for you, not interested in myself, but, you know, no big deal. Or three, we'll hear the truth and we'll humble our hearts before God and we'll accept the gift that God is offering us and that is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We all fall into one of those three camps and God knows our heart. But the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it's with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I don't know where you are today, but God knows because he knows his own. And for those who aren't sure, today is the day of the Spirit. Today is the day to cry out for forgiveness, and God will hear your prayer. Father, we just thank you. We love you. We praise you for the truth that you've given us. And I pray for anyone here who's not sure of their relationship with you, that they would humble their heart today, that they would recognize that they're a sinner, that they would repent, turn from sin, and turn back to you, to fall upon your mercy and ask for forgiveness, and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and subsequently rose from the dead, demonstrating he has the power over death. God, that he has the ability to give eternal life, that all authority has been given to him. And Lord, we just thank you that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from you so that none of us could ever boast. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you that the person that comes to faith in Christ, the sinner who has been reborn, would live a life of purity, so pure and so committed to righteous living that we'll have a powerful testimony to the world around us. 
as we're persecuted for sharing the truth, that we'll be persistent in our faith, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is never in vain. And we just thank you that there will be uh, there'll be productivity from it, that it's your chosen message to, to share with the world. And as a result, there will be those who come to faith in Christ because of the faithful teaching and preaching of those who know your truth. And we just thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.